As you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Philippians chapter 2. As you're kind of getting yourself situated in Philippians chapter 2, I thought I'd start by just letting you know that I am a huge, huge fan of um, the Lord of the Rings. I am. If you don't know that by now, um, you should. You should know that because it's been said before that the world can actually be broken up into two distinct people groups, the people who have read the Lord of the Rings and the people who have not. And I think there is for sure truth to that. It does hold true. Think about it. Um, But I was thinking a little bit about this series and considering this Christmas season and really trying to grasp kind of the big picture, so to speak, of what God has done through this season and maybe through a summary form looking at some scripture that really highlights this in a really brief but pointed and profound way. You'll notice there on the screen, um, the series title for this Christmas season is there and back again. And for those of you who are very perceptive and are fans like me, you caught the, even the font that's used there. This is a throwback, a tie-in to the Lord of the Rings. More specifically, it's a tie-in to The Hobbit. See, at the beginning of the epic trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Bilbo Baggins, the main character, one of the main characters, he sits down to write the story of his own epic adventure, which he entitles, There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale. And if you didn't know that, the, the, the book, The Hobbit, actually the subtitle is There and Back Again. The story of The Hobbit was written for children initially. It was to be a children's book, but it has become popular among both children and adults. It's a favorite in our home. And it really is an incredible story about an unassuming hobbit who leaves his perfectly good and beautiful life to go on a dangerous and life-threatening adventure to become an unlikely hero who then returns back home with greater treasure, greater wealth, greater riches, more than he could possibly had imagined. And in some very obvious ways, it parallels the story of the Messiah, and in particular, the story of the Incarnation. The Incarnation, the story of God becoming a man. The Incarnation is really the central miracle of Christianity. It is the most wonderful and astonishing of all the things that God has ever done. It is the theme of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and it really is the theme of the Christmas season. I want to read for you what Paul writes in Philippians 2. You can follow along, beginning at verse 5. We're going to read the entire section, and we'll only focus on a couple verses this morning. Paul writes these words, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing.'" taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Here is arguably the most succinct and brief summarization of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in Scripture, and yet when we step back and look at it, it is also arguably the most profound. 
In condensed and summary form, we see ultimately the one who was there and who came here only to go back there again. And in between, he accomplished what no other person could ever thought to accomplish. And the focus of this passage is both theological and ethical. In other words, what Paul is getting at here is what is essential to believe, what we must believe to be true about Jesus Christ. And when we believe it, it will actually determine how we live. Jesus is held up here in Philippians 2 really as the prototype, the, the model for how we ought to live specifically with one another and, and in the world that God has created. We are to embody this incarnational attitude of Jesus, an incarnational living of Jesus. You see, the Christmas story is intended by God to do a number of things in our hearts and our lives. And as we sung this songs this morning, I hope that as you think about Christmas and you think about the truths that we sung, it does produce in your heart this morning a sense of joy. There really is joy in this season as we think about what God has done, and that is for sure what God has intended. God intends for us to be reminded of the peace that's ours through Jesus Christ. It was one of the songs that the angels sung peace on earth and goodwill towards men. God intends for us to experience during this season a great sense of gratitude, thankfulness in our hearts to Him, again, for all that He's done. Certainly, this leads us to experience a sense of praise and adoration. And here, what we see is that it is also intended by God to produce within us, His people, His children, an inner humility. It is a humbling thing to consider what God has done. And the incarnation begins with an attitude of inner humility, an inner humility that was present, listen, before this world existed. It existed in the heart and mind of God as He looked towards His creation. And it's the same kind of humility that ought to be produced in us as we contemplate the deep realities of the incarnation. Over the next few weeks through this passage of Scripture, we're going to do a deep dive into the incarnation this morning, we're going to look at the attitude behind the incarnation, specifically the inner humility of Jesus Christ. And here we need to see that this is exactly what God wants to produce in us. So inner humility is produced first when I embrace the divine position of Christ. It's essential as we consider Christmas to consider the divine position of Christ, the position that he held from eternity past. You see, we're inclined to think of Jesus Christ in a moment of time, isolated, especially during this season, isolated in a very brief moment of time in a very particular place, a place called Bethlehem. But what the scripture does is it pulls us back from this isolated event and it forces us to consider a much larger perspective, to look at it from a much larger lens. Paul begins in verse 5 by admonishing the church, specifically the church in Philippi, but to us as well through the Spirit of God. And he admonishes them to be unified. This is what he's been talking to them about in the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, look at it with me in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, in other words, if you are a part of Christ's family, if you really truly know Him, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. What exactly is that one mind? 
he's talking about. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, this is what Paul is grabbing hold of and driving into verse 5 when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, the one who epitomized this, the one who displayed this the most profoundly is Jesus Christ, and he's done so in an eternity past as he looks towards the incarnation, God becoming man. It's important to to just note this, that the concern of of the Spirit of God and the Apostle Paul is not merely with inner attitudes of individual believers, but with the manifestation of these attitudes in our day-to-day encounters with one another. Paul says this kind of inner humility, it actually invades our lives in such a profound way that it is fleshed out in our relationships with one another, the way we treat each other, the way we serve one another the way we love one another. But to help produce this attitude and heart mindset, Paul doesn't say, you know what you need to do? You just need to try really hard to accomplish this. You just need to kind of buckle down and do whatever you can to serve other people, to sacrifice your rights and and, and all of the things that you think you're owed. And instead, he says this. He says, you know what the key is to developing this kind of inner humility in your life? The key is to always go back and look to Jesus Christ. But it's amazing to me that the place he wants us to go back to is actually a place in one sense before arguably time began. He points us back towards the incarnation of Jesus. Really the attitude that was behind that in the first place. And so Paul looks at this incarnation and here's how he begins to describe it in verse 6. Just the first part, look at this. He's talking about Christ Jesus here, who though he was in the form of God. That's such an interesting phrase, he was in the form of God. When we think of something being in the form of something else, we think of something external. It looks like this. It has the external shape of, it's formed into the image of this. This phrase can actually be translated being in the very nature of God to capture the sense of what's being communicated here. In other words, this speaks to the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. It's not speaking predominantly of his physical form. Remember the context here. We're not even into the incarnation yet. We're not even into Jesus Christ, God himself, sorry, taking on flesh. We're not talking about that yet. We're talking about who Jesus Christ is before the incarnation. He was in the form of God. Christ existed in the majestic form of God from all eternity as he shared in the glory of God. Jesus actually alludes to this in his high priestly prayer in John 17 as he speaks to his disciples on the evening right before his own death. He prays this magnificent prayer, one of the most phenomenal prayers in all of scripture. And in this prayer, he highlights some profoundly deep theology. As he speaks to God, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is something that is truly, truly difficult to grasp. We are finite beings, meaning that we are constrained by time and space. 
And it's very, very difficult for our finite minds to comprehend the infinite, eternal God. It just is. We will never truly understand the infinite, eternal God. No matter how hard we try, he is incomprehensible to so many degrees. And yet, God has revealed some things to us that he wants us to chew on for our own benefit and for his glory. The form of God. The scriptures highlight this in other places. In fact, John 1, 1 through 5 talks about the pre-existent Christ, the idea that he existed before anything else was created. It says, in the beginning, in John 1, 1 through 5, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was the light of life, or life, excuse me, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Colossians, this is how Paul frames it. He says this, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn there doesn't mean that he was created. It means that he has the firstborn rights and privileges. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." You see, so the form of God does not refer simply to the external appearance, but instead to His eternal being, His eternal nature. It's who He is and was and always has been and always will be. And let me just give you one more section of Scripture to highlight this, Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. Or it says, but in these last days he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You see how scripture wants to highlight this over and over and over again. He was there before anything else was created. It was only created in and through him, and it was also created for him. He is the radiance, listen to this, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He, he does not simply reflect the glory of God. He's not like the moon, you know, that, that reflects the light of the sun. He actually holds and contains within himself an eternal glory of the triune God that he reflects out so that people can see who God is. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Do you see that? And he upholds the universe for the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John Calvin says that the form of God means here his majesty. For as a man is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. It is his eternal splendor. It doesn't speak here again of external appearance or outward shape, but of the essential attributes and the inner nature of Jesus Christ. You know, this is incredibly helpful for us just to, to process as difficult as it is. You see, the, the contrast that Paul is painting for us is in contrast to the way we often think of Jesus. 
If I just said to you, think about what Jesus looks like right now, what do you think of? I know what you think of. Right? I, I know you think of a postcard Jesus, right? I mean, he's definitely white, right? Like super white, like he's like vitamin D deficient. He's got a beard, he's got long hair, his clothes have been washed with Tide. Just a little twinkle in his eyes. Sorry, Santa Claus. That's what we think of oftentimes when we think of Jesus. We think of the physical Jesus. We think of the Jesus who actually was incarnate, but we don't ever pause to think about what Jesus was like before he became a man. And what the scriptures is doing for us here, it's pulling us back into that reality and reminding us, listen, that Jesus was not always a man. That's a staggering reality, isn't it? When we come to the Christmas season, we sing these songs about, you know, a baby in a manger, and we don't pause oftentimes to consider the stunning reality and miracle that took place. God was not always a man. He eternally existed in Trinitarian fellowship. Okay, God, listen to this. You think, well, where did God live before he became a man? Where, where did God live? Heaven, do you realize this? God never lived in heaven before it was created. you realize heaven is created? You wonder who heaven was created for? Not God. Do you think God needs heaven? Heaven is created for you and me to enjoy the presence of God forever. Before heaven existed, before earth existed, before anything existed, Jesus Christ existed with the Father and the Son living in perfect harmony and peace forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's a stunning, stunning reality to think about. And the glory that Christ had before the world seems surreal, doesn't it? And really unimaginable to our oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, unreflective, distracted souls. But the reality behind these words is Listen, beyond our comprehension, it's so hard. It's hard enough for us, listen, trying to consider what it's like any time before we existed, isn't it? You ever try to do that? Like, I wonder what it would have been like, you know, for my grandparents, you know, when they were kids. I can't even put myself there, let alone in eternity past. You see, this is one of the constant challenges in reading about Jesus Christ. To allow our minds to dwell upon the incomprehensible realities of his person so that, listen, so that our understanding is progressively elevated and our hearts are progressively enlarged. This is the point of God here, and and I'm I'm so unapologetic about this. Listen, the whole point of looking to the scriptures, first and foremost, is to enlarge and expand our hearts with a deeper love and adoration and affection for Jesus Christ. Consider this again in this brief moment. Listen, there was never a time when Jesus didn't exist. He had no point of origin. He is, as Revelation tells us, the Alpha and the Omega. He is outside of time and space. And yet, he invaded time and space. So why is this so important for us to consider? Yes, to enlarge our hearts. Yes, to expand our affection. Yes, so that we can step back in wonder and in awe of the God of this universe. But you see, there's a, a real practical side of this too in terms of our evangelism and our communication of the gospel, especially around this season. You see, in every generation, we must contend for the biblical view of the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Ever since the gospel of Jesus Christ burst forth onto the scene, it has always been attacked. Ever since Jesus Christ was proclaimed from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, listen, every time Jesus has been proclaimed, the same attacks have come against the person of Jesus Christ. Every time. Heresies have crept up from the very first century, and they continue onward to this very day. We still hear things like this. Yeah, I believe that Jesus was real, but he was just a good prophet. Or he was, just a, uh, he was a good man. He was a fine example. He was a wonderful teacher. But he wasn't God. No. No. There, there is no place for those kind of phrases in the Christian vocabulary. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a good man. He is not, he is not even a great man. Jesus Christ holds the supreme position in the universe. He is God. This is what makes what he did and what he planned to do in eternity past, from eternity past, such, listen, an astounding act of humility. Do you see why Paul wants to start here? He wants to drive humility into the family of God and into every one of our hearts. And so what he does is he pulls kind of the, the, the layers back of the incarnation. And he says, you want to know what humility looks like? Just first understand the position of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal God. He holds the supreme position in the universe. And now I want you to consider what he was willing to do. And the call for us this morning is to maybe even just a fresh way, just to ask God to help us to embrace this divine position of Christ in a fresh way, or maybe for some of you this morning, for the first time. You see, the heart of the Christian message requires every person to look to Jesus and to acknowledge that he is not simply a good person or a good teacher. He didn't simply have wisdom, nor was he just a prophet from God, but to embrace the reality by faith that he is God himself. But contemplating this deeply will lead to greater inner humility in all of us. And that's what God longs for us as we look to Jesus. Secondly, inner humility is also produced when I see Christ's divine privileges. And this flows naturally from understanding His divine position. Listen, we understand that in life, position, generally speaking, comes with privileges. And the greater the position that you've been given in this life, maybe it's a work position the greater the privileges often are. There are benefits to be enjoyed based on position. And here, what Paul says in the second part of verse 6 is this. He says that, who though he was in the form of God, catch this, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And you see, what Paul is getting at here is this idea of the divine privileges of Jesus Christ, what was afforded to him because of who he was and who he is. Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's an interesting way of kind of conveying this idea, but it's not that it couldn't be understood. You know, we hear this word like, you know, well, he, he didn't expect us to be able to grasp it, to understand it. He didn't think we could process it. We, we, just, we understand that's not true because that goes against what Scripture calls us to know and believe. In fact, Jesus Christ himself on, in his earthly life was constantly... Uh, showing the Jews that he and the Father were one. They stoned him or tried to for blasphemy because he made himself equal with God. 
He declared that before Abraham was, I am, meaning I am God. It's not that this couldn't be understood, this equality with God, but that it was, here, here's how you need to understand this, it's something that he would not exploit. Something of which he chose not to take advantage for a season. His equality with God led him to view his status not as a matter of privilege primarily, but as a matter of unselfish giving. You see, God, for a season chose not to exercise the divine rights and privileges of being God, not in all of its fullness. It makes me think, uh, every time I think of the incarnation, I, I always think of that, that show, you know that show, uh, Undercover Boss? I don't even know if it's still on. I, I haven't seen it a whole lot. I've seen a few episodes. More than that, I've just seen clips. But it's always fascinating to me that they've, they've got this, this show. It's, it's a really fascinating concept. It's really brilliant, actually, where you know a CEO of a major company or corporation, an owner of a business who's not involved in the nitty-gritty, who, who kind of really doesn't really know what's going on on the ground. He's at a high level. He oversees things. And the people on the ground don't have any kind of interaction with him. They don't know him. They don't even know really what he does, probably. But what he does is he agrees to step down to kind of disguise himself and to um, make himself like the employees that work for him. And it's fascinating, as you, as you kind of get to the end of the show, they do this big reveal, right? They do this big reveal, and they show the employee maybe that had worked alongside him, that had really helped him, and, you know, he's got this, this boss has got this new appreciation for what his employees go through and all of that and all of that. But at the end, this big reveal happens, and they show the employee who looks at their boss, who walks out, you know, in a suit and tie, and, you know, he's introduced as the CEO of the company, and they're stunned. They're stunned to figure out that this was the guy who was right alongside them. And it's, just, it's amazing to me how amazed people can be when they see something like that and how less amazed we are when we realize that God did so much more than that for us. This is what God did. The God of this universe decided to come and walk around amongst his creation to make himself known in the most vivid way possible, to empathize with them, to sympathize with their weakness, to experience their suffering, to understand in a very personal and intimate way, listen, a way beyond any of us will ever be able to comprehend the depth and the depravity of sin, not of his own, but of ours. So why? Why would, why would God do this? Why would he give up his privileges of being God? You know, this is the staggering reality that we need to embrace too. God didn't create us because he needed us. There's this, this notion in a lot of people's minds that, you know, they, they try to logically understand why God created us, and some people get to the place, and I can see the logic in this where they go, well, clearly God must have created the universe because he was lacking in some way. There was some void in God that needed to be filled. And, and, you know, from a human vantage point, that makes sense, but not from a divine vantage point. Because God is perfect in his eternal being. He's existed for all of eternity without needing anything. He is completely fine in and of himself. Amen? All right, so, so then the question is, remains still, well, why then did God create us? Listen, he did not create us because he needed us. He created us because he wanted to share himself with us. 
God existed in eternal joy and bliss in his Trinitarian relationships. And God, for whatever reason, for reasons we'll never be able to comprehend, I don't think, God decides that he wants to make a creation and he wants to create a specifically a people, humanity, that are made in his image. Not, not that we look like him, not that God has nostrils and hands and arms, not, not like that, but that so we are made to know him in a personal and intimate way and to reflect his glory to the world. Do you realize that God could have created us simply to control and dominate us? He could have. But instead, He created us to share Himself with us. He created us to give Himself to us. Because of the immense joy and satisfaction, listen, that comes from knowing this majestic God and being like Him. This is so pivotal to understanding your purpose in this life. Every human being exists for one purpose. It isn't for your job. It's not because of your giftedness. It's not because of what you want. You exist to know God and to be made like Him. And this phrase that Paul uses, that that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, it highlights this astonishing, giving nature of Jesus Christ. Those who live, listen, in other words, to get power and to wield power, to dominate other people, those are the kind of people that are filled with pride and are constantly fueling pride in their own hearts and their own lives. They live for themselves, they live for their own glory, they live not to share but to steal, they live not to help but to hoard. But you see, it produces that kind of living, it produces a discontent kind of life. It produces inevitably a hollow, shallow, never satisfied, often paranoid, constantly anxious, and generally miserable kind of life. People who live to get from others end up very, very miserable in this life. You see, the get more life is actually the get less life. when we look at Jesus, he's the model, isn't he? He didn't consider being God grounds for getting, but for giving. The Messiah did not live to please himself. Paul says that in Romans 15, 3. But instead, he was fixed on serving others. You see, the concern of, of God was not just that we would have a better life, that we would have more comfort and more ease and more fun. God wanted us to have Him. Because if you have Him, you have everything. But you see, our fallen nature, the sin-cursed flesh that we all live in, this side of heaven, it's infected by sin. Sin is, is, is fundamentally selfish. Sin is fundamentally opposed to God. Sin is fundamentally about grabbing, not giving. Sin is fundamentally about stealing glory for ourselves, not giving glory to God or others for that matter. So the question is, even for us Christians who wrestle with our flesh, the Spirit of God waging war with our flesh, how can we go from being a grabber to a giver? How can we go constantly from moving in this, from this place of grabbing and holding to giving and helping? How can we have a, 
a mentality of a downward mobility instead of an upward mobility. You see, the world pumps at us. You need to rise, 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 become more powerful, gain more authority, get a better position so that you can have more privileges. That's what the world pumps at us. But Jesus says this, the way up is down. You want to know how you do it? The simple answer is this, you need the gospel. You need Jesus. Because through his perfect life and atoning death, he gives us forgiveness of our selfishness, of our greed, of our pride. He gives us forgiveness of all the sinful things we've ever done against others, the ways we've hurt other people. More importantly, he gives us forgiveness by the ways we rebelled against him. He gives us forgiveness, and then he turns around and he gives us new life. And that new life empowers us to live for him and empowers us to live like him and empowers us to be transformed into the image of him. Actively and practically, here's what this can look like in your life and in mine. We need to choose to do things on a regular basis for others that in our flesh we believe are below us. Now, I don't think many of us actually talk like this, but I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we very often think like this. We look at jobs that need to be done, we look at opportunities to serve other people, and we're inclined to say, uh, you know what, that's a little beneath me. You know, I spend my time doing some pretty major things throughout the week. I've gained a pretty, pretty good position at work, or I've really kind of elevated my life to this place where I don't have to do kind of menial or trivial things. I'll leave that to the lower class. I hate to break it to you, but we're all lower class. We need to choose and commit to being like Jesus, doing things that are below us, so to speak. You know, the reality is the only one who ever did something that was below him was God. This is what he's highlighting here for us. This is why he can say, you know, you can serve one another without selfishness or rivalry. You don't have to be greedy in your relationships. You don't have to be hurting each other to get yourself further ahead God didn't do it, so why should you? If you ever hear yourself saying something or thinking like this, that's for lesser people. You've begun to think of yourself far more highly than you ought, and your attitude is actually the opposite of the one who gave up everything to come and get you. This is what Jesus tried to teach his disciples when he stooped to wash their feet. Remember? It's such a profound moment. It points to the cross ultimately. But Jesus, listen, the rabbi, the rabbi was the most respected person in the Jewish culture. And, and Jewish servants, Jewish servants were not even allowed to wash the feet of other Jews. They weren't allowed to do it. It was reserved for Gentile slaves or servants. It was the lowest, most menial task in that culture. And here, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of this universe, he wraps a towel around his waist, he stoops down with a basin of water, and he goes around to every single one of his disciples, and he washes their feet, and he says, listen, what I've done for you, you go and do to others. This is the kind of attitude that characterized our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the kind of attitude that ought to be characteristic of us as we contemplate Christ's divine privileges. May we be willing to give up the privileges we think we are owed or deserve. May we be like our Savior Jesus Christ 
who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but we find ourselves living open-handed with what we've been given by God, desiring more and more to emulate our Savior who lives within us and is manifesting His presence through us. The final point here is this, the inner humility is produced and I appreciate Christ's divine prerogative. Paul moves towards this sharp contrast, and we're going to look more in depth at this next week, but I felt it was necessary to highlight who Christ is, where He was, and in some small way give a picture of how He existed, His glory on full display in eternity past, But this sharp contrast elevates this idea of who Christ is even in our hearts and minds. It elevates what he's done. You see what he says in verse 7, just the very first part of verse 7, he says this, but made himself nothing. See, see, you see, the point of that word but, don't miss this. If you're, you kind of mark, highlight that word but, because he, Paul has built this case for just the magnificence and majesty of Jesus Christ. So don't you get his position? Don't you get his privileges? He is the Lord of glory, but it's supposed to stop us dead in our tracks. But he made himself nothing. The one who was everything made himself nothing. The word there for made himself nothing has been translated, he emptied himself. And the point that Paul is driving here is that Christ refused to hold on to his divine rights and prerogatives. That though he was the God of this universe, and though he had as such, because of his position and privileges, he had divine prerogatives, he could do whatever he wanted, and nobody can tell God what to do. He makes the rules. Yet, he refuses to hold on to these divine rights and prerogatives. He veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity in this moment, A.W. Tozer says. Sometimes we say, remaining all that he was, he became what he was not. The verb here that he uses, this empty idea, it appears four times elsewhere in the New Testament. Every time it is used by Paul in one of his letters. And in all uses of this term, to empty, it's not used literally to refer to emptying something of its qualities that it possesses. Instead, it speaks figuratively of nullifying something or making it of no account. Paul, for example, talks about emptying the cross of its power as if that was possible. It's figurative language. And this is important to understand because historically, liberal theologians, that's code word for uh, theologians who denied the Bible, um, developed a theory stating that Christ gave up his deity. If you're interested in the technical terms, it's called the kenosis theory, which is based on the Greek word that's used here, which is kenos. But this kenosis theory gained a lot of traction in in the the Christian world, but the idea was that somehow Christ, in becoming a man, he gave up his deity, he voided his deity, he became a man for a season, but lost all of his divinity, and that simply, according to Scripture, is not true. 
What Paul says here is not that he lost his divinity, but that he veiled his divinity. He willingly chose not to exercise certain aspects of his deity. He never lost them. He never in any way ceased to be God, not for a moment, not for a second. He was never stripped of divine attributes. This theory is to be outright rejected according to scriptures, and we're going to look into this a little bit more next week, but for now, let me just give you a, an illustration that I read from um, a writer, a pastor named Brian Chapel. He gives this helpful illustration to understand what emptying himself means by relaying this story that he heard from an African mis- missionary, and I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it a little bit, but give you really the heart of what he says. He says that this missionary told a story in this particular part of Africa um, about a chief. And in this village, like is common in a lot of uh, villages in Africa, the chief is the strongest man in the village. It's not always by divine blood right. It's often because he's proved himself to be the strongest and most capable. And as the chief in this village, he also wears a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. And one day, a man carrying water out of a, a shaft of a deep well fell, and he broke his leg, and he laid helpless at the bottom of the well. To get down to the bottom, somebody would have to climb down using the alternating slits that go all the way down into the, the deep well, and then he'd have to climb all the way back up. All the villagers came to try and help the man, but there wasn't anybody who was strong enough and capable enough to go down and rescue this man. He lay there helpless. He lay there dying. When the people of the village saw that nobody could help him, they went and they summoned the chief himself. The chief looked at this man. He saw his plight, and he laid aside his headdress and his robe, climbed all the way to the bottom put the injured man on himself, and he brought him up to safety. In that moment, he did what no other man could do. And you see, that's what Jesus has done for us. He came to rescue us, and in so doing, he laid aside his heavenly glory, like the chief did with his headdress and his robe in order to save us. Now, in that moment, did the chief cease being the chief when he laid aside his headdress and his robe? Of course not. Did Jesus cease being God when he came to rescue us, when he laid aside his heavenly, glorious, majestic robe? When he took off his crown of glory, did Jesus Christ cease to be God in that moment when he stepped onto this earth as a human? Of course not. You see, although Jesus Christ had access to all the prerogatives and power to which his identity with God entitled him to have, and although he could have exploited those prerogatives and power to dominate or destroy humanity, he didn't. Have you ever thought about that? You know what's so miraculous about the incarnation? You know what's so miraculous about Christmas? Is that God had every right, he had every prerogative to look upon the sinful rebellion of humanity He could look upon this earth, and in a moment, he would have been justified in exacting payment for sin. 
He could at any moment, listen, if he so chooses, because it's his world and he is a just judge, perfect in holiness and splendor, he could look at this earth and he could in a moment rain down fire from heaven like it was Sodom and Gomorrah. He could in a moment cause the rains to fall from heaven and flood the earth if he had not promised that he would never do that again. And we know this because we know that one day he will return with judgment. But God in his patience and grace, though he has the prerogative, chooses. He chooses to extend mercy. He chooses to delay judgment and instead, not simply delay judgment, he chooses to enter this world to receive judgment that we were owed. Jesus considered his divinity as an opportunity for seeking and saving. He looked at our plight and he realized that there was no other strong man who could come and rescue us. There was nobody else who could bring light and life and hope and joy. There was no one else. It must only be him. And he used his divinity not to be served, but to serve us. Not for dominance over us, but to deliver us. His divinity was not used for getting, but for giving. It was his prerogative to remain in heaven, exalted and glorified as he always had been, but, but before the foundation of the world, because of his great love, he determined to empty himself, to make himself nothing, so that we might be filled with him and find in him everything. He did not have to. He chose to. Listen, this is the best part. Because he wanted to. He wanted to. He looked at us with love. He looked at us like a father who looks at his children who are struggling and hurting and dying. He looked at us with a heart of love. And what love he looked at us with, what humility would cause him to give up what he did not have to give up to come for us, those who have rebelled against him. And you see, you can look at your life and you can see that you have looked at many, many rights or prerogatives. You do. You can do what you want. You can. You can stay inside your house. You can hunker down, create a bunker, I don't care, dig a hole in your backyard, Brick it up so you never see another soul in your life again. Eat canned beans, I don't care. You can put your head down, never talk to a stranger. You could focus on what you want in this life and from this life, not what others desperately need. This is what we call selfishness, not selflessness. And the very idea of selflessness requires a remarkable inner humility that doesn't come naturally to our sinful condition. But you and I can choose, listen, by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit, to empty ourselves for the sake of others, to lay aside our prerogatives out of love and humility like our Savior, to joyfully choose to do what Jesus joyfully did for us, to give in order to gain. Imagine how the relationships in your life might choose if you were living in them with this kind of inner humility. 
where you saw people not as things to be used to get what you want, but as people created in the image of God who you have the privilege of serving and bringing greater glory to Him. When we look at Jesus and consider where He was and what He had in all of His eternal glory, nothing lacking, nothing needed, nothing necessary for Him, it reminds us that He looked at us who were lacking everything, needing everything, desperately needing Him. His love birthed a humility that would lead him to give all for us. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, the cross reminds us of what he was willing to give in order to get us. What are you willing to give in order to get others for Jesus? Position? Privileges? Prerogatives? Be gripped by and grab hold of this incarnational attitude of inner humility.